Welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh, and I'm a staff writer for TheRinger.com. My fellow writer for The Ringer is Michael Bauman. Hello, Michael. Hello. I've had a busy week, Ben. Let me tell you about the busy week I've had. First of all, I've been trying to catch up on The Expanse before Uh the the games get to the point where I have to start paying attention to them. Are you watching The Expanse at all? I am, yes. Sci-fi show. Yeah, it's really good. Mm -hmm. I encourage everybody to listen to The Expanse. And when I'm not doing that, I've been trying to figure out why the hell you'd start Eric Hosmer at first base over Paul Goldschmidt. Because according to Jim Leland, he's better, right? I guess. I mean, (laughs) judging by Jim Leland's facial hair right now, he's no stranger to puzzling decisions. But (laughs) I don't know. Eric Cosmer is a world champion, so he's he's got that going for him. During the game against Puerto Rico, they were talking about how he's the the Royals all-time leader in postseason RBI, like, <laughs> yeah, well, it's not a ton of competition. Right, as there, if that's but... not a function of him playing in in six postseason series, mm-hmm. anyway. <laughs> right, like, oh, George, you know, he beat out George Brett. Yeah, how many postseason games did George Brett play? Anyway, actually, I just looked it up: 43, 12 more than Hosmer, and Brett hit way better than Hosmer too, but drove in fewer runs. So that line is less inexplicable than the decision to start him. Fortunately, Adam Jones is doing his best to make sure it doesn't matter. Speaking of George Brett, we're going to hear a song about him soon. Later in this episode, we are going to talk to two members of Isotope's Punk Rock Baseball Club. You may not have known there was such a thing as a baseball punk band, but there is, and they're about to release a new album. They have a new single out, so I'm going to talk to them about how they became a baseball punk band. But first, we are going to talk to two people from Fangraphs. One week ago, Fangraphs released its traditional top 100 prospects list authored by Eric Longenhagen, who joins us now. Hello, Eric. Hello, Benjamin. Ben. Ben's fine. Either way. Before that, (laughs) Fangraphs also released a stats-only top 100 prospects list, which was authored by, well, a computer system called Cato, but that system was created by Chris Mitchell, who also joins us now. Hi, Chris. Hi there. Hi. So I like this thing that Fangrass does. You have two methodologies coming up with prospect lists independently. And Cato, for those who don't know, do you want to give a a very quick high-level summary of how it works? Sure. Cato is a computer-based model that looks at minor league statistics and attempts to forecast how minor league players will do in the major leagues. And kind of the end result is a wins above replacement figure Mm -hmm. for that player's first six years in the majors, which generally correlates with his time under team control. Mm -hmm. So it's taking into account how the prospect has actually performed and his age and ballpark and height and, and that sort of thing. So it's just looking basically at what the prospect has done, whereas the list that Eric produces is looking at what the prospect has done, but also things like his athleticism and his tools and his skills and his makeup as evaluated by Eric and by the people in the industry he talks to. So it's your traditional type of prospect list. And these lists come up with some of the same names, but also different names. And it's instructive to see the different names that they do come up with. So Chris, can you give us an example of, say, a past prospect who might have made only your list or only Eric's list? Yeah. um, For a guy who would have made Cato's list and no one else's, I think Jose Altuve is kind of one Uh of the quintessential examples. Right. 
He's a guy who performed at pretty much every minor league level. He was young for his level. He made tons of contact. He stole bases. He did. He was basically Jose Altuve, except in the minor leagues. But mm -hmm. I don't think he made any top 100 lists when he was coming through the minors. I think a lot of that had to do with his size. But Cato would have been all over him. He would have been near the tops of, of all the lists I would have been putting out. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there it goes the other way as well. I mm -hmm. think a good example of a guy that Cato would not have been on at all is Carlos Gonzalez. He was always a, a, a top prospect by all of the scouting rankings, but really that was more tools-based than anything. And if mm -hmm. you go look, go back and look at his minor league numbers, they weren't all that great. I mean, he was a good hitter, but not necessarily a great hitter. There were certainly better hitters in the minors and he kind of struck out too much. He didn't draw a lot of walks, but scouting people were always talking about his tools and lo and behold, the tools eventually materialized and a couple of years later, he was one of the best uh, outfielders in baseball. So Cato will miss on, on guys like that and look kind of silly, but it will also identify the Jose Altuve's of the world guys who maybe nobody's really talking about and could end up providing some serious value. Right. So both methods potentially have some blind spots and you're very upfront about the stats-based systems blind spot and you do have a different version of the list that tries to incorporate some scouting information by looking at prospect rankings, but we're just talking about the stats only one. So the idea here is that we're going to look at some guys who made Eric's list, the, the traditional scouting-based list, and who didn't make Chris's list, the stats-based list, so they their performance just hasn't been there to this point for whatever reason. And so we're going to have Eric explain why they're good, essentially, and Chris explain why the stats-based <laughs> system doesn't think they're good. So before we get into the disagreements, Chris, could you just list some of the guys you, you looked at, the guys who appear on both lists and who had the highest average rankings if you take each of them? So these are the guys who are approved by the stats and also approved by the scouting measures. So could you reel off some of those names? Uh, yeah, sure. So Andrew Benintendi, uh, Austin mm -hmm. Meadows, J.P. Crawford, Ozzy Albie, Albies, Dansby Swanson. All those guys were very close to the top on both lists. So they're guys who Eric likes, uh, had good scouting stuff, and they've also performed in the minor leagues. Mm -hmm. And he mentioned a handful of others to me who had good rankings according to both systems. Yoan Mancada, Cody Bellinger, Manny Margot, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., and Victor Robles. And so now let's let's get into the hot take portion of this podcast, the, the crossfire okay. part. So can you give us the, the first name, I guess, the highest ranking prospect on Eric's list who does not also appear on the stats-based list? Okay, so we have Anderson Espinoza. He's mm -hmm. a, a pitcher in, in the Padres system. Okay. Eric, give us the <laughs> scouting report. Tell us why Cato is wrong. Yeah, so uh, Espinoza turned 19 last week and was traded mid-year from Boston to San Diego last year in the um, Drew Pomeranz trade. And I think he, he didn't pitch particularly well in the handful of starts that he made in the, in the Padres system last year. But, you know, it was an 18-year-old who was just removed from the organization that changed his life at age 16. And was just uprooted from the Red Sox complex in Fort Myers and you know, just his entire life changed. He's been up to 98 uh, this spring. Uh, sat 95, 97 last fall during instructional league, just ahead of writing the list, and flashes two dominant secondary offerings in his curveball and changeup, both of which I think have a chance to be dominant plus plus pitches. And that sort of raises a 
a question about any sort of stats based prospect punditry like at what point do you start looking at success or failure for its own sake like you know obviously you want guys to to miss bats in the minor leagues but it mm-hmm. you know it feels like the espinoza i think was in low a last year so how much can you pro- even project results from from that low in the minor leagues well i know for from a scouting perspective that i look at results too and it definitely informs my process in a way but I'm far more apt to take them at something closer to face value when I know that the competitive environment that the player is in is somewhat uniform, and that's just more likely to occur at the upper levels of the minors, high A, double A, triple A. And I'd prefer that there wasn't some sort of gimmick ballpark or three that is, was on the player's circuit you know, in that league. Yeah. Cal league. Cal league is high A ball but it's a hitter's paradise. Pacific Coast League is AAA, but the same deal. So there are lots of factors that affect minor league on-paper performance that you don't see in the big leagues and that I think can color stats in in ways that are misleading. So one guy who showed up on the the scouts list and Cato apparently doesn't like very much is Corey Ray, which as someone who like, I covered him pretty extensively when he was at Louisville and he's one of the best all-around college players I've ever seen. Just well-rounded and did it in a really tough environment in the ACC. So I guess Chris does, I know that there's a version of Cato for college, but does this version take college performance into account at all? Or, you know, or is this just starting with a blank slate when, uh, when Ray hits pro ball? Yeah, this particular version only takes into account pro ball. I have done some work at the college side, but I haven't combined them yet because it's kind of comparing apples and oranges in terms of competition level and stats availability and all that stuff. So the version that I'm working with now just looks at what he did after he signed last year in a ball Mm -hmm. and his numbers weren't all that good. He hit 243. He kind of struck out a lot. The power wasn't necessarily there. He didn't even steal bases like he did back when he was in college. And he's also not necessarily a a big guy. He's listed at 511. And that's kind of another thing that Cato takes into account when looking at players like this. So obviously with someone like Ray, this is a small sample size and it was just after signing his first stint in pro ball. So you could probably give him a pass, but Cato hasn't really seen anything yet to really indicate that he's on track to be a a productive big leaguer. So give us the counterpoint for uh, Brewers outfielder, Corey Ray, Eric. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Ray's really interesting. He's not an ironclad, like slam dunk elite level scouting prospect. I I think uh, quite highly of him and he certainly has... Uh, scouts that that think he he is among the better prospects in all of baseball. Uh, the tools are pretty impressive. It's like plus plus run plus bat speed. There's power in there. Doesn't always get the bat head into the zone as early as you'd like to you know to really pull the ball for power. And maybe if an adjustment can be made, might be able to do that in the future. There are scouts who think he's going to hit like 20, 25 home runs once he figures out how to do that. But the tools kind of play down in some in some aspects. He's he runs well enough to play center field, obviously, but his routes there are not quite as polished as you'd like to see from a big school center fielder. Might have to move to left at some point, but the physical tools are there and make that work as well and provide some some extra value on the bases, sort of rare for a left fielder. And with his speed out there, he might be an elite defender in left field. So yeah, there's a chance for hit. There's a chance for power. Position is still sort of up in the air. And I did check with clubs about his performance in pro ball, the ones that have and are willing to vaguely share what they have as far as minor league exit velocity said that that was fine. It was probably just a small sample size issue that was causing the uh, 
the performance in his short uh, pro ball stint after he signed last year to maybe not look so good, but he was hitting the ball fine. You think this is one of those things, you know, he goes from, from a full college season to pro ball and he's playing into August and September. Like, do you think that's one of those things where he just wore down at the end of the year? Like you see some college guys doing their first season? Sure. Yeah. Nobody brought that up specifically. It's hard for pro scouts who are getting their first look at college players to know for sure that that's what they're looking at because they didn't see the guy in college. But Ray, and yeah, then Ray tore what he tore his meniscus, I guess, late in the year too. So he, yeah, he might've been wearing down at that point. Yeah, I think that there's certainly an argument for that as well. Mm -hmm. So Espinoza was 10th on the scouting list. Corey Ray was 20th. And the number 14 guy on that list, Rockies shortstop, Brendan Rogers. He's a guy I know that Chris has devoted a a whole post to Mm -hmm. because he is not on the stats only list. And he was a third overall pick in the 2015 draft. So he comes with that pedigree. And if you look at his sort of surface statistics, they seem okay. So Chris, what is it that we might potentially be missing or overrating about Brendan Rogers? Well, as you, as you said, he's, his surface statistics look fine. He's the guy who hit 281, 342, 480 um, as a teenager in full season ball. That's fine, especially from a shortstop. But if you drill down a little further, there's the fact that he played in a ballpark that was very friendly to right-handed hitters. I think the home run park factor in that, that ballpark was like around 200 or something like that. So that I think had a big impact on his numbers. And if you look at how he performed at home compared to how he performed at the road on the road, then you see a pretty big difference. And if you strip away those power numbers, then his profile suddenly doesn't look all that enticing. He kind of struck out a lot. He didn't draw all that many walks. He's not someone who seems like he's going to provide a ton of value on the bases. So really at that point, you just have a 19 year old shortstop in short season ball, which is encouraging, but the offensive stuff just isn't really there for him. And Eric response, defend your number 14 guy. (laughs) Rogers. He's always hit. He's hit going back to as a junior in high school against uh, elite competition. And there are teams that keep statistics for showcases and such where the level of competition is more uniform, where it's all the high end pitchers from around the country against all the the best hitters from around the country or, or most of the time that's the case. Uh, so his track record of hitting extends back four or five years at this point. He's one of these players who it's not an overwhelming collection of tools. It's just solid average above average, maybe a plus tool here or there for, for Rogers. It's on the offensive end. It's, you know, the bat and the power uh, might be plus at maturity and he plays shortstop. So in a vacuum, you know, if Brendan Rogers were a left fielder or a third baseman, it's maybe not all that spectacular, but from someone who scouts think is a viable defensive shortstop, it's very good. So it's, um, yeah, I think he's got a chance for 15, 18, 20 home runs at maturity and more or less statistics in line with what he did at Asheville last year, to be honest with you. But yeah, it's just uh, because he plays shortstop everything, the, the value is is terrific. So I want to bring up two guys who I think are less interest. I mean, I think they're really interesting prospects, but I want to bring them up because of how they interact with a computer projection system. And that's Mets right-hander Robert Gitzelman and Phillies catcher Jorge Alfaro. Because, I mean, one of the, the limitations of of a projection system is that it doesn't know that Gazelman had a velocity spike last year and that his slider got a whole lot better because apparently if you just hit triple a with the Mets, then you're going to have a six or seven slider. This is just (laughs) 
how this works anymore. And Alfaro is one of those guys who keeps ending up on on prospect lists because he's a freak athlete. He's got plus power. He's got a plus arm. He's a really good at runner for a catcher. But it, he spent two and a half years in double A and hasn't really performed all that well at, at any level. But then, you know, you see things like the home run he hit off Fernando Rodney and the uh, bow and arrow celebration, which made me love him even more. But like the projection system doesn't know that he just needs to unlock one or two things in order to to become you know a really good big league catcher. And it's interesting to view that as sort of a reminder that he hasn't done that. Like uh, the projection system, you know, Cato will take a, I don't know if conservative is the right right word, but like a longer view of guys like this where something changes or we're waiting on one thing to click into place. But it's, you know, so much of scouting is heuristics and gut feelings. And it's interesting to see something, you know, see that interact with with a system that like that doesn't have a gut. So I guess we'll we'll go to Eric and see if you have anything to add on Gaselman or Alfaro. Yeah, so that's what sure. you're, you're number 32 and 39 guys, respectively. Yeah, Alfaro was at 32 and Gaselman was at 39. Yeah, so on Gaselman, you, you're right, Michael. It was just a situation where there was like a velocity spike and suddenly there was this viable slider, whereas previously he had been uh, like an above average to plus fastball and fastball command pitcher only, and there was very little else to offer. And then by the end of the year, while I'm you know skeptical of the results he put up in the in the big leagues in September, where he made I want to say two thirds of his starts against like the Phillies and the Braves, it's a 70 fastball now. It's like 94 plus with movement, heavy ride in the zone. It's pretty dirty, uh, and that slider. So I think he's just a slam dunk, no doubt, mid rotation starter, and that's the sort of thing that that falls into like that middle two thirds of the uh, of the overall top 100. And then on Alfaro. You're right. It's, this is one of those situations where uh, he Alfaro's what, like 22 or 23 now and has basically been a famous prospect among those who care about that sort of thing since he was 17. So it's been, you know, more than half a decade where he's been on the lips of, of scouts because it is freakish athleticism for a catcher. And yeah, he's had issues defensively, very unpolished, receiving ball blocking, were both issues for him when he was younger. The arm strength has always sort of played down at times because while it's like it's like a 70 or 80 pure arm, there are some mechanical issues that cause some accuracy problems or he'd be slow getting out of his crouch and have a longer release. And uh, And the power has never played in games because he's always had a very expansive approach and there have been strikeout issues. And the reason a guy like that, some of those issues have been solved and he's on the precipice of the big leagues now, but the reason that he ends up on a list like this always is because if, if in the event that all of those things are remedied somehow, then he's a generational superstar. And it is a scenario that exists in abstraction. It is sort of a thing you have to do some mental gymnastics to see. But there are players who, quote unquote, put it together, is you know, the phrase you'll hear scouts use often when describing players like this. That become, you know, perennial all-stars where they had one fatal flaw at one point, it gets corrected, and then suddenly it's not there anymore, and they do nothing but succeed. And Alfaro is one of those guys where if it ever comes together and he has the athleticism that it might, then he's, you know, like a three, four win catcher. And as it stands now, I think just based on his power and athleticism, he's at very the very least going to be an above average everyday one, especially at a position where the bar for offense is so low. Yeah, to your point about his how long he's been around, this is his sixth season on the baseball prospectus top 101. 
yeah, he's a legacy guy. He's a guy that I think was identified in the public sphere pretty early, just based on who was seeing him. Yeah. Well, some other guys on the scouting base list that did not make the stats only list, Ray's righty Brent Honeywell at number 53, Reynaldo Lopez, the White Sox righty they got this winter from the Nationals in the Eaton trade. He's at 59. And then there is Colby Allard, the Braves lefty at number 60. And right after him at 61, Indians catcher Francisco Mejia, who had that epic hit streak last year, all on the scouting base list, but not on the stats base list. Any quick comments about any of those guys, Chris? Well, I'll say broadly, a lot of the pitchers on that list, Cato is generally cautious when it comes to pitching prospects. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of that is just that they get hurt so often. Yeah. They, they lose velocity so often. Random things happen where pitchers go from being good to not being good. Mm-hmm. And Cato is a system that tries to project how guys will perform over their first six years in the major leagues. And, you know, in a lot of cases, even pitchers who come up and have a successful stint in the majors, they don't sustain it for any extended period, mm-hmm. at least not as long as hitters will. So I think uh, when I did this list, I think something like 70 of the top 100 were hitters. Yeah. So that's, kind of crowded some of these pitchers off the list, whereas mm-hmm. Cato doesn't necessarily dislike them. It's just they're not among the, the tippy-top pitching prospects just because Cato bakes in so much risk into into those projections. Yeah. And that brings up something that I probably should have asked about 15 minutes ago, Chris, is you know what do you find, what kind of players do you find that, that Cato likes more than, than you would have expected? I think on the hitting side, it places a lot of value on the ability to make contact. Lots of times it'll come up with guys that I don't really know a lot about, but I look at their profiles and they have a strikeout rate of like 10% and they weren't they were relatively young for their level, uh, even if they haven't hit for any, any power yet. It's kind of projecting that maybe the power will come as things progress. So that's kind of the, the biggest archetype that I've come across on the hitting side. On the pitching side, I think strikeout and walk rate, those are the, are the big ones, especially strikeout rate. If you're missing bats in the minor leagues, odds are pretty good that you'll do the same in, in the big leagues. And as we know, those are the metrics that kind of stabilize the quickest. So you can really kind of tease out the, the signal from all of, all of the noise by looking at those things. Mm-hmm. My, f- my favorite part of, of the Cato is looking at the teams that show up on it most often. Because I think you can see which clubs are interested in, in the specific metrics that weigh in Cato. Like you can see the decisions that they've made as an org, mm. like the, the sorts of talent in the minor leagues that they prioritize. Like look, look at all the Astros names on Cato. Garrett Stubbs is on there and AJ Reed is firmly in the middle of it as is Ramon Laureano, David Paulino. Like these are all good prospects and like several of them are worthy of top 100 consideration. Derek Fisher's on there, but they're... Uh, there's just like an usually high number of them. <laughs> kind yeah. of interesting. The twins have a bunch of guys too now, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, that just brings I heard, uh, I went to a talk by uh, Sig Meidel, the who's in the, the Astros front office. And like he was talking about when he worked for the Cardinals, one of his things was uh, projecting college players based on stats. And, you know, he talked about an ongoing discussion he and Jeff Luna had when, when Luna was the, the scouting director about, um, about Jed Lowry. So, 
yeah, I guess that would that would make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, this is really interesting. And of course, you don't necessarily have to choose between the list. I mean, in theory, if you could only go with one, you'd probably go with Eric's list over the purely stats-based Cato list, just because not only does the scouting list know a lot of things that the Cato list can't know, but the people who do a scouting-based list like Eric can look at the stats. And Eric, I know you use Cato numbers from Chris as a sanity check, just to make sure no one slipped your mind. And so there's a lot more information there. But of course, we don't have to rely on only one. And Chris even has the hybrid version that tries to meld the two. And that's usually the best approach if you can find a way to do it. So I'd encourage everyone to go to Fangraphs and look at Chris's top 100 list and Eric's top 100 list. And Chris has also done a list of some guys who his computer-based system liked more so than the scouting-based list. So it's all interesting stuff. And it's always in lightning to see why a guy ends up on one and not on the other in cases where they conflict. So you can find Chris on Twitter at underscore Chris underscore Mitchell and can find Eric and Twitter at Longenhagen. And of course, they're both writing regularly at Fangrass. So thanks, guys. Thank you. All right. After a quick word from our sponsors, we'll be back with the Isotopes and a clip from their forthcoming album, 1994 World Series Champions. You've perfected your wardrobe. Congrats, that's more than I can say. But what about the stuff not everybody gets to see? If you've been settling for store-bought underwear five packs, I have something that will change your life and elevate your underwear game, Me Undies. Your underwear is the first thing you put on, hopefully, and the last thing you take off. So make your most important piece of clothing the best it can be with Me Undies. What is Me Undies? Just seriously soft, feel-good undies delivered right to your door. Designed in LA and made from sustainably sourced micromodal, a fabric that's three times softer than cotton. Me Undies softer than soft, Lux Undies. Come in an ever-changing selection of classic colors, bold shades, and adventurous patterns, so you can tailor your undies to your own personal style. And guess what? You can save time and money each month by opting for a monthly subscription. Even if you're not ready for a subscription, you can still save because MeUndies is offering you 20% off your first pair when you use our special URL, MeUndies.com/MLBShow. So go ahead; it's spring training for underwear too. Revamp your underwear drawer; you deserve it. Once again, that's MeUndies.com/MLBShow for 20% off your first pair. MeUndies slash MLB show. And I also want to tell you about Simply Safe. Protecting your home should be easy, right? This isn't the Middle Ages. We don't need a moat and a drawbridge and arrow slits. But it still isn't as easy as it should be. Getting home security can often mean countless installation appointments, drilling holes in your walls, and getting locked into contracts that make you wonder if it's even worth it. Well, your home is worth it. Your family's safety is worth it. And that's why Simply Safe is making it simpler, it's in the name, than ever to protect them. With Simply Safe, you can get comprehensive, professionally monitored home security online. Each Simply Safe system is a thoughtfully assembled security arsenal from entry and motion sensors to a high definition security camera you'll have everything you need to keep your family safe and best of all there are no long-term contracts or hidden fees ever which explains why cnet called it comprehensive easy to use protection and named it editor's choice for home security in 2014 so order today and be protected by the end of the week and get an exclusive 10 percent discount when you go to simplysafe.com ringer right now and order your simply safe system that's simplysafe.com ringer
So those sounds you were just hearing are from The Legend of George Brett, the lead single off the new album by The Isotopes, a baseball punk band. You may have heard of them before. They've released many EPs that were collected in one release called The First Four Seasons, and then there was Nuclear Strike Zone. And now there's a, a new album, and we are talking to two members of the band, Evan October and Justin Safely. Hi, Justin. Hello. And hi, Evan. Hi, how are you? Good. So could you guys, I guess first, just tell us what you do with the band. Evan, you want to go first? Sure. Um, we're, yeah, we're a baseball themed punk band and uh, I'm the singer of it. And uh, we've been, we've been going for about 10 years now. And uh, yeah. with Justin and I, I've been, I've been doing this for 10 years. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a utility bench player. <laughs> so what is that? Uh, what does that constitute in a in a baseball punk band? Sometimes I play the bass. Sometimes I play rhythm guitar. I sing backups, and uh, sometimes I sit on the bench. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. So, so give us the origin story. How did this band come to be? Well, it, it came to be just the nature of uh, not really wanting to write songs about uh typical things that bands write songs about and uh you know just asking myself what i wanted to do and i and i had this one song that i wrote i think infield fly was the first first isotope song and i said you know what like i think i could do a few more of these baseball songs and that's pretty interesting to me because no one else is really doing that uh-huh. and uh at the time I, I knew of justin but i didn't really know him but i i knew enough to know uh, that he was a baseball fan as well and we had similar music tastes so i presented to him the idea of doing this band and he was all in for it. So we've kind of been working at it since then in various capacities. He, he sent me a solo acoustic version of Infield Fly. The song literally just explains the rule in musical form. <laughs> That's tough enough to do in prose. I, it, well, it's, it's one of our longer songs because it's such a needlessly complicated rule. I think it might be our longest song, actually. It could be. It's proven useful, though. <laughs> so... One thing that stands out as a longtime consumer of, you know, pop rock, punk music is that like none of it is about sports and that, you know, that little that is about sports usually isn't very good. So how do you get around that constraint when you're when you're writing songs? I think the key is to choose topics that are um, interesting enough to, to have a take on. People are always telling us, like, we should write a song about this or that. But but there's a lot of stuff you shouldn't write a song about. and. Um, to be able to identify a theme or topic and be able to relate it to your audience, you know, it doesn't matter what you're writing about, but that's the key to songwriting successfully. And uh, we're, we've been able to do that with, with taking ideas that are funny, you know, or uh, interesting and even a, a more broad way than just to the average baseball fan. And there's a lot of cool stories in baseball that we've touched upon. And there's a lot of humor that we can cultivate. So it's, it's been a matter of just like being selective, I think is, is the key. I I think it also comes down to already being good. Like Evan's, Evan's high school band that didn't sing about baseball wrote good songs. So if you're, if you're a good musician and a good songwriter first, then you just have to have the discipline to say, okay, how many things about baseball can I write about? That's true. And like musically speaking, we've, we've always been uh, in the position of having a, everyone in the band's always been great. You know, like everyone's got a lot of skill and there's interesting fact about this band is that pretty much all the guys who, who play with us on a regular basis also are primary songwriters and singers in their own projects. So there's a lot of talent that, that comes uh-huh. to together to, 
to do this band, which is nice to have. That feels like one long extended shot at John Fogarty to me. But (laughs) (laughs) And you guys are from the Vancouver area, right? And you have a minor league team there. The Mariners aren't too far away, but is that a baseball hotbed? How did you guys become fans before you became a band? Well, base, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's getting there. The Jays have, have kind of been an influence over the last couple of years, but the Canadians here, that's our minor league team, the Vancouver Canadians, they're a really cool ball team and they do a nice job of making baseball exciting in the city. Also, Vancouver is like, I, as far as I know, when I was growing up, it was like the number one place where people got drafted from in Canada. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a strong infrastructure of baseball here at a youth level, which I think obviously helps generate interest in the sport. The Canadians used to be a triple A team and then they they moved away and now they're a short season A team. But the fact that they're tied in with the Blue Jays and the Blue Jays have a national TV deal, which is basically everyone here is a Blue Jays fan rather than a Mariners fan. I am a Expos fan who used to watch them in French on the French equivalent of the CBC on Sunday mornings when I was growing up. So that's kind of how I got into it. Mm-hmm. And what about your own personal baseball background? So the I've noticed a lot of the themes in your songs, you know, Ray Ordonez, George Brett, Ballad of Jim Eisenreich sort of feels 1993 World series to me since both of you are Canadians. You know, how did both of you get into baseball? Well, yeah, I mean, that's the era that I grew up watching baseball and I learned how to play baseball watching guys like that through the 90s. And uh, I played all my life. I've been playing since I was three years old. And it's just been it's kind of my first love, you know, and music came later and they've kind of they've kind of worked well together. But I identify mostly as as a baseball guy, I think. And uh, watching those guys through the 90s was a, a big influence for me. So when I started to write songs, that's kind of where I was pulling from. And uh there's nothing that's been too forced with it. They're just things that I've that have crossed my mind. And I know Justin's the same and he'll have ideas where it's like, remember this guy or that guy? Like, that was funny. Let's let's write a song about that. Yeah, that was as Canadians too. like the Jays back to back, followed by the Expos in the strike year was completely peak baseball in Canada. And people we still you, you can drop a Dave Winfield reference and and people chuckle because it's kind of everyone our age is is playing off the same scorecard here. And I love the name of the new album, 1994 World Series Champions. What was the inspiration? How did you come up with that? <laughs> well, I've actually been sitting on a name for about as long as the band has existed and uh, <laughs> waiting for the right time to use it. And uh, yeah, it's, it's like we, we kind of have this in Canada, there's this kind of like unofficial possession over the, over what would have been a, a third Canadian world Series, world series championship in 1994 uh, looking at mm-hmm. the standings of that year it looked like the Expos were in a strong place to at least be there and the Jays could have pulled off a good second half in that season too and so it's kind of just a funny funny name for an album and I think a lot it's going to be lost on a large number of our fans but but the ones who do get it uh, are going to appreciate it I personally still don't find it funny yet. <laughs> so we used to work with Jonah Carey, so we know all about the the Canadian ownership of the 1994 World Series. <laughs> yeah. So is baseball a punk rock sport? Like, do you have to work hard to make it punk? I mean, there's all this talk about baseball being old fashioned and you don't want guys to throw their bats or show emotion on the field. And that's changing, fortunately, but that has sort of been basically baseball's reputation so do you have to work to make it punk or can you find the the punk rock attitude in the sport somewhere uh i don't have to work at all to to find that i think i think it is the most punk 
sport if you if you want to categorize it like that it, i think there's a lot there's a lot of uh parallels between the two and um doing this band has has made me realize that there's a lot of people out there that that kind of feel the same way but it, it i mean baseball and punk kind of go together since the beginning of punk at least right justin like there's that there's that johnny ramon quote that said something johnny like, ramon is obsessed with baseball he he would go to games on when the ramones were on tour and watch the first few innings and then like or if there was a day game he would whatever city he was in he was looking at the baseball schedule and going to every single uh, game he could for 20 years of being in the ramones yeah there's this great quote that he said that was like i'd rather have been a baseball player than in the ramones right and it's that's kind of telling and and uh yeah the, the two lifestyles are, are similar and the two things are similar in themselves where you you have to uh be okay with failure like that's what baseball is all about right is just managing your your ability to to accept failure and uh punk is is very much like that as well so i think the two go hand in hand quite nicely and there's no uh there's no struggle to to relate one to the other as far as this band goes or songwriting in general. Mm-hmm. So Evan, are you still banned from touring in the U S I can't think of <laughs> any much more punk rock thing than that, or maybe it's kind of a kinks thing, which is kind of a proto punk thing. So yeah. how did that happen? Is that still the case? It is still, the, I'm, I'm banned not only from touring, I'm banned from entering the United States <laughs> for any reason. And it started in 2013 with trying to enter without proper visa documentation to work in the States. And they basically regarded that as an act of uh, tax evasion um, uh-huh. because I was, you know, technically speaking, I was working, although, you know, it would be easy to argue that I wasn't. But anyway, so mm-hmm. I got issued a five-year ban from the United States, um, myself and Dallas Duststorm in the band. And uh, that's almost up in 2018, but it's still puts me in this position of having to, um, to apply every time I want to go down for the rest uh-huh. of my life, which well, is nice. The <laughs> land of the free, right? Yeah. I guess <laughs> you were just ahead of your time. There That's are right. a, a lot more people getting banned these days. It's true. <laughs> it's happening to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that leaves you with the, like you guys said, touring in Europe, how does a baseball themed act play in Europe? Well, um, over there, I, yeah, like like I, like you said, it's, it's not exactly a baseball place you'd think, but there are um, there are pockets. Italy was amazing as far as that goes. Italy is pretty receptive to baseball, and they have a little bit of a history with it. And um, some places you go, and, and it's just like it's crickets. People don't get it. People are unwilling to try to relate to you, and they don't know what a bunch of these Americans are doing up there talking about baseball. And that's fine. That's often the reception that you get when you go anywhere in a punk band anyway. So it's not too different for us. For, uh, Germany and, and Berlin has a really cool system of independent baseball teams. Of, uh, like there's a big league over there and they're all, they're all very uh, nice guys. I've reached out to some of them and I've played with some of them over here actually. So baseball is actually pretty big in Germany as well, which I did not know. And do you think you're limiting your audience by focusing on baseball? Or do you think it's something that helps you stand out? Like are most of your fans, hardcore baseball fans who like the subject matter of the songs or know about baseball and then find you that way? Or do they just like the music and not necessarily know who or what Ray Ordonez was? Uh, I, I think we've definitely benefited from being distinct in theme like that. I've had this conversation with Larry Livermore, who was the founder of Lookout Records, who like uh, you know discovered Green Day and stuff. And he asked me one time at this festival what the hell we were doing. 
you know, like <laughs> he said, like, what's with the, ba- Hey, listen guys, like, no, come here. What's with the baseball theme. I've been hearing about you guys. I like the band, but I, I don't know what the hell you're doing with this bait. Like, don't you think you're like basically like uh, alienating anyone who would ever want to listen to your band? And I told him, Larry, no, you're totally wrong about that. This is the way that, that we define ourselves and, and make ourselves distinct from all the other bands out there that, you know, we could possibly be compared to or sound like. Yeah. But I would also say, you know, in a way it doubles our audience because people who listen to our style of punk rock might listen to you no matter what you're singing about. Whereas we're on this podcast, not because of the band we are, but because we sing about baseball. That's so true. Well. There, there are baseball only, you know, opportunities that come our way that we have no business being involved in if it wasn't for the band, as well as, uh, you know, the built-in audience that listens to good, catchy punk rock. Mm-hmm. It makes people aware of us who maybe wouldn't listen to a lot of our peers. True. I want to ask about a fashion choice that you guys have made in, the, in your music videos. You're all wearing isotope shirts and they all look awesome. Is that decision to wear your own merch in the in the videos? Like, would you do that if you hadn't lucked into or maybe not lucked into, but if uh, the shirts didn't look cool or is that? Thank you for saying the shirts look cool. They're great. I, I love them. I design all the merchandise for the band as well. And um, it's kind of been my thing where it, just like baseball teams and stuff, you gotta, you gotta look good, right? You gotta have a cool logo. You gotta go out there and make people intimidated by you just based on how you look. And people kind of sometimes think it's funny that we wear our own shirts every once in a while. And I think it's great. And, um, it's just that gang mentality, that gang image that you want to project as a band. And especially as a band that goes around playing baseball and and being a baseball thing as well, it's intimidating and people notice it just, you know, like you, like you did. And I think, uh, yeah, I mean, if we, if we had, if we had t-shirts and designs that, that didn't look good, then we wouldn't wear them. We also didn't start out doing that. Um, the first few shows, Evan bought us all matching striped t-shirts. So we were dressed like all the kids from the sandlot. And there was a show where we realized I was talking to people after, and I it came to the realization that nobody had noticed that we were supposed to be baseball themed. We were wearing PF flyers and, uh, striped shirts. And we we're like, we're dressed like the kids from the Sandlot. It's obvious. Well, <laughs> it wasn't quite obvious enough. So now it's flip down shades and eye black and hats and, and all of that. When you're out on the road, everyone's, everyone starts like going through all their t-shirts. Right. And uh, all of a sudden everyone's digging through the merch bins to find a clean t-shirt to wear. So by about like a like, week into the tour, everyone's just wearing the merch because it's out of necessity. <laughs> I assume you started with the Springfield isotopes logo and turned the nucleus into a baseball, which the Springfield isotopes really should have done to begin with. Well, but was that the inspiration? I'm not even sure that they didn't, to be honest. Um, yeah. At the time that we, that we named this band, there was this like theme trend in, in punk in pop punk bands to start naming their bands after Simpsons references. This was like, especially here. It was, uh-huh. yeah, there were a lot of them in BC. Yeah. So early two thousands was like, Hey, name your band after, um, a Simpsons reference. And the biggest one I can think of right now is fallout boy, but yeah. mm-hmm. it, it was just a thing. And so I thought, you know what, if we do this, there's the perfect name for it. It's just call it, you know, base it after this baseball team on the Simpsons, which is the perfect tie in for us. And then, yeah, the logo is just like the obvious logo for that, which is a, a rip on that, but it's also the obvious isotopes logo it's not even an iso actually it's a it's an atom but every everything baseball team or hockey team or 
or band that calls themselves the isotope seems to gravitate to some perversion of this logo. So <laughs> I find it funny that Evan doesn't actually really like the Simpsons that much. <laughs> it's not that I don't like it. It's like, I'm not, I'm not a, I, was, I didn't grow up a fan. I grew up watching baseball. So, you know, mm-hmm. I didn't have a lot of time for the Simpsons growing up. <laughs> and just musically, who would you consider the big influences or who were your main idols growing up? Well, we get compared to bands like like the Ramones or like Buzzcocks, the Dickies, a lot of 70s and 80s style sort of punk punk bands or, or new wave mm-hmm. bands. Um, and then some 90s stuff too, pop punk like, um, you know, Screeching Weasel or uh, Green Day even, if you don't know, you know, stuff like that melodic you know, music that sort of has this uh, thread of humor in it as well. Sorry, I feel like Letterman. This is cool. We've never had a band on the show before. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, thanks a lot for having us. This is great. So on the new album, you have a song about Morgana, the kissing bandit. You have Rule 21, the, the no gambling rule. You have the George Brett song that we've already heard. How did the inspiration strike you? Do you have a long list of things that you want to write baseball songs about? Do you come up with the songs and then think this will fit this thing I like about baseball? How does that work? I do have a list and I basically write from song titles. If if there's something that's an appealing like visually and just the words of a song title, I can make mm-hmm. that work into a song. And also the content of, you know, I like the dark stories in baseball and there uh, there isn't a shortage of dark stories in baseball. Morgan is a great story, sad. Or the, the Ballad of Ray Ordonez, that is an incredibly sad story. So, mm-hmm. you know, you come across these stories and I make a list of them in my phone. And when it comes time to writing songs, and I kind of write songs in groups. I just think about them and titles and, and Justin, Justin's a good sounding board too. And he's often got song title ideas and stuff. And it comes sort of naturally to us where we, we know it if we hear it, like we'll just know if something's a song. When, when I get it, when I get a text that says, did you hear Jose Canseco just blew off his thumb with a gun that looks like a gold <laughs> scorpion? I just respond. That's a song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they kind of write themselves, really. Or I, I send a text that says, did you ever think of writing a song about throwing a no-hitter on acid? And he's like, 10 minutes later, he's like, okay, I wrote it. So <laughs> so, so, what's on the cutting room floor? Like, what have, what have you wanted to write about but haven't been able to pull off? Or is there anything kicking around that you're just trying to nail down? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I always had this, I kind of grew up in this, uh, well, through the Jeter era, right? And I've never been a huge Yankee fan. And Jeter was always kind of the uh, antithesis to me of, a, of a, what I thought a shortstop should be. And, um, I always wanted to write an anti Jeter song, but, uh, it really never, <laughs> never came to be. That's extremely punk rock. The anti Jeter yeah. song. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, okay. Yeah. It, that's just the way I feel. I mean, I think he's a great player, obviously, but he's just not what I, I ever wanted out of a shortstop. So I thought it was something I felt strongly enough about to write a song, but it just never, it never came to be. You wanted one who could field or, or what yeah. did, what did or you Ray Ordonez. <laughs> yeah, I like, yeah, I like guys who can um, turn base hits into outs. And I never saw Jeter mm-hmm. do that a lot. I think he's a really sound <laughs> player. He's sound, but mm-hmm. like he's not he's not doing anything that uh, never did anything for me that was too exciting <laughs> in the field. You know, you can't take away. Yes. Yeah. Right. Well, he's about to be a new dad. So maybe this is a bad time to pick on him. We didn't pick the best time to pick on A-Rod. <laughs> That's true. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so the lead single and video for The Legend of George Fret is out now. The album 1994 World Series Champions It will be out on April 14th. And you can look up the isotopes on isotopespunkrockbaseballclub.com. 
on Twitter at Isotopes or on Bandcamp Yep, at theisotopes.bandcamp.com. And you can find all their music there. And they're in the midst of a long tour. If you are in the US, unfortunately, you can't see them until <laughs> maybe 2018. But if you're in Western Canada or Europe, you might be in luck. So thanks, guys. This is great. We, we have to get a closer to use you as entrance music or at least a, a walk-up song. Someone's got to use you as a walk-up song. Yeah, that would be ideal for us. <laughs> uh, I love that. And th- thank you for those links. I'm just going to add, add to that. Um, you can mm-hmm. find us on iTunes. The new album is on iTunes. It's ready mm-hmm. to go. Eight ninety nine, I believe it's priced at. Very reasonable. <laughs> yeah, we're everywhere. All right. Justin Safely, Evan October. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having us. Okay. So that is the end of this episode. This episode with two guests in a band. So we thank you for watching this episode of Jimmy Kimmel Live. <laughs> yeah. Going to move into late night any day now. By the way, you mentioned at the beginning of this episode, all the things that have been keeping you busy. You also have been busy asking every big leaguer in Arizona who the second best pitcher in baseball is. But I guess I shouldn't spoil the answer. We want people to go read your article. Did yeah, you have a did you have a different answer from the consensus of people you talked to, or was that your answer also? I went down there hoping that my answer would be validated by the players, and and I don't know. The answer I had was the name that got brought up the most. I don't know if I would go so far as to call it a, a consensus, though. Uh huh. Okay. All right. Go check that out, everyone. Okay. So that's it for this week. Enjoy the WBC finals over the next few days. It will be actual big league baseball not long after that. So we'll talk to you all soon.